Hey guys, welcome back to the Take a Seat, Not a Side podcast hosted by Kelsey and Brian Halverson. This is a couples podcast where we dive into all things pop culture with our own special twist. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Anyone who has listened to us in the past knows that I am a huge college basketball junkie, and that is starting back up. So good for me, bad for Kelsey. And when most people think of college basketball, what do they relate that to? March Madness, right? Well, I just read an ESPN article that makes a pretty good point that the true March Madness is the Iditarod. If anyone is not familiar with what the Iditarod is, it is a about a thousand mile long dog sled race that takes place every year up in Alaska. The race consists of about 50 mushers who take their team of dogs from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome, Alaska. And in that about thousand mile race, it's just grueling, grueling terrain and conditions. It's, you know, it's cold. It's obviously cold in Alaska, but they're fighting the snow. They're fighting storms. So yeah, maybe the ESPN writer has a point that the true March Madness takes place up in Alaska and not on the basketball court. Well, we have a special guest with us today, and that is a rookie musher in this year's Iditarod race, Julie Annan. Julie is from Bessemer, Michigan, which is where I'm from. I originally saw Julie's story in a local newspaper from back home, and I thought we need to get her on here and hear her story because there has to be so much that goes into running a dog sled team that we would never even think of. And with how much Kelsey loves dogs and how much I love sports, like what a perfect guest to have. So Julie, why don't you say hi? And then let's start with telling us how you got into mushing. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me here, guys. Thanks for joining us. So I have been working for Jesse Holmes for, I think this is my fourth year working for him now. Um, so I've been in and around these uh, these dogs for quite some time now, but, um, it was never really like a direct path. I guess nothing really is to, (laughs) to anything, but mushing, um, I was interested in it as a kid. Uh, we had done that program at Mrs. Malmberg, you know, a couple of throughout the race. Learn about the dogs and, and everything that goes with Iditarod. Um, I just thought it was really neat. Um, but then I had graduated college from, I graduated from Bogibic um, with a nursing degree, actually. And I I was nursing for a little bit, but I, I kind of wanted to go find a new place to live. I had been living in the UP my whole life. And um, I'm very thankful that I grew up there. And it's such an awesome place. It's a very special place in my heart. But I was, you know, kind of wanting to spread my wings a little bit. And so I ended up quitting my jobs. And uh, moving out of my apartment and into my car. <laughs> and I traveled around for, <laughs> yeah, um, this was when I was 20. Um, and I traveled around uh, all over Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, um, and then eventually made my way up into Canada. And um, I was just backpacking and having a good time and exploring new places. And eventually, what my plan was 
was to, you know, find a place I really liked, you know, some, a place that, you know, I, I could see myself living for, you know, a time, some years, <laughs> um, and, you know, start my nursing career there. And I just never <laughs> really panned out that way, which I'm very thankful for now. Um, I might have been go back to nursing, but um, I was working on a farm in um, British Columbia. It's kind of near Whistler. And it was, they had goats and chicken and turkeys and um, a big orchard and a big garden. And I basically was, it was during harvest season. And I'd heard about these mushers up in northern Canada that needed basically a help, helping hand. Um, and so I was like, what? I didn't know you could, you know, just basically volunteer, you know, room and board type of situation for, you know, being like a musher's apprentice, basically. Um, so I messaged those people. I made my way up there. They lived up in the Northwest Territories. They still live there. Um, Danny and Susan, Susan Fleck and Danny Bolio. Um, so that's way up in Northern Canada. And I worked with them for, um, I was, I was, I think it was like three or four months. And then after that was when I moved to Alaska and started working for, um, this distance Iditarod team. So that's how I got to where I, <laughs> long story short, or there's many bumps in the road, but. That's so cool though. I mean, you just like went for it, like to put yourself out there, you know, and just hope that people are like, sure, come on over. But it sounds like it all worked out. Yeah, everything did kind of just work out magically. I think maybe now that I'm like a little older and wiser, I, I might not have been as uh, uh, so quick to like, oh, well, I'm just going to move up to Alaska now. <laughs> um, but thankfully, everything has worked out pretty beautifully. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, because you're probably going to be, if not the youngest, one of the youngest mushers in the race. Uh, how old are you right now? I just turned 25 in September. Brian, you never ask a lady how old they are. How <laughs> Do you know if you're the youngest no, person that's racing? Okay. Um, I don't think I am. I think I was curious about that one day, and I looked at the people signed up for the race, and I believe there is um, – I don't, I don't know the name. I could find out really quick, but um, I, I want to say she's from – somewhere in Europe I want to say Norway but that might not be correct but there's another I, I want to say she's 21 or 22 or something like that but I did see there is there is some younger mushers but that's what's really cool about the Iditarod is um you know it's men and female in the race and every age possible I mean I think you have to be 18 but um there's not a lot of like professional sports where like men and women compete in the same field and um I don't know who the oldest musher would be this year, but there's been mushers in their 70s competing in the Iditarod, and I just think that's a really cool aspect of the race. Yeah, I, I remember that one because I was in Mrs. Mulberg's class also, and we covered the Iditarod, and I remember um, my buddy Jamin, he had, he, I think he had Charlie Bolding, who I think he has raced up until recently, but he was even old back then. And mm -hmm. um, so, like, like you said, the, the the age range is just massive. It's something that you can do for you know, into your, like you said, 70s. So mm -hmm. um, something else you just mentioned that there are mushers that come from all over. I think I was looking at betting odds on the last year's race just recently when I was, you know, looking stuff up. And the United States mushers weren't even the favorite to win the race. So, yeah, like good mushers come from all over. That's 
Yep, there's quite a big mushing scene in Norway. So there's quite a few Norwegian mushers, and I did just look it up. Her name is Hannah Lyric, and she's from Alta, Norway, and she's 22 years old. Um, she is from Alaska, but yes, she, I think she would be the youngest one that has signed up so far. That's just crazy to me that, you know, that's that's young. Like, I don't think I would have the kahunas to even attempt to finish that race and you guys are taking it on full bore that's awesome yeah it's it's a little scary you know i'm gonna ask you this is this is one of my favorite questions i have it later in the in my list but um so you also double as a firefighter and you fight forest fires all over right california mostly um so my crew is based out of alaska but we travel to the lower 48 um after the fire season ends in alaska which is a little bit earlier just because you know winter comes a little early up here um so after you know the state of alaska will release alaskan firefighters then we can pretty much go anywhere down south and it usually ends up being california um but uh there is alaskan firefighters all over the lower 48 this year in oregon washington nevada um we spent my crew spent a bunch of time in montana idaho as well as California this year. Uh, but yeah, I've gotten to see a lot of the, a lot of the country places I've never been before. Last year I went to Colorado and California, which I, I've never visited before. So that's, that's a pretty cool part of the job. I actually took a firefighting course back home. This is probably about 10 years ago. We never actually got called to, to be part of a fire. But so I took this firefighting course and like, they like drove home the point that like, it's a hard two weeks out there. You do like two week rotations. And when you're out there, like you are um, eating MREs and you are like cut off from um, electricity and you, you're basically camping in a tent for two weeks, but it's hot and you're in, you got all your gear. And then when you work, it's hard. Like people think uh, fighting fires, like spraying water on fires, it's completely different. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a water aspect to a lot, but um yeah, there's a lot of, uh, it's a pretty, I don't want to say archaic is the right word, but um, I guess so. It's kind of, the, the way that you fight fires is not really like what you'd expect, just like spraying hoses and whatnot. Like you have to kind of like dig it up out of the ground, especially in Alaska. There's a tundra layer and it, it can burn underneath, you know, up to like two feet deep and you got to dig it all up and it's it's not just like the big giant flame fronts that you think of when you think of forest fires. Sometimes it's just like the embers burning on the ground, but that stuff spreads too, and that stuff's got to be out as well. So a lot of it's just kind of pounding dirt sometimes. But that's interesting that you took that. Um, is it called the red card course in Waters Meet? I'm not sure. I don't remember. It was a while ago. Uh, it kind of sounds like it would be um, the red card courses. It's usually like a week long. Um, it's like basic firefighter training for wildland firefighters and everyone has to have their red card before they're, um, out on a fire. So I took that last year before last year was my first season fighting fire. And I remember taking that class and they, they kind of do try to scare you a little bit. Um, I mean, all those things that they tell you are real, um, but not all of them happen. Um, <laughs> uh, but they definitely pounded into your head. Mm -hmm. Like this is tough. You are going to be uncomfortable you will have to work very hard. You're like, okay. Yeah. 
so now now knowing that you've you've must now in have you what's the longest race that you've done so far? Three hundred miles. So is that over a course of a few days also? Yeah, yeah. I I don't remember the exact time it took me, but it was just over a couple of days. So do you expect the Iditarod? Like, what do you think is a more is going to be more grueling? The the you know eight to ten day, twelve day, however long it takes to um, do the Iditarod, or two weeks that you'd spend fighting a forest fire? Well, um, I'm thinking that it would be that the Iditarod is going to be a bit more challenging. Um, because in, in fire, you do work, um, you know, two weeks at a time in a roll and 16-hour shifts. Um, and I already know what that looks like. You know, I've done that before, but I've never raced dogs for 10 days straight. Um, so I think there's just the unknown factor of, um, yes, I've done like a couple 300-mile races now, but um, I think a 1,000 miles is a completely different beast. So I'm going to be tapping into some expertise that, I'm not sure uh, things I maybe haven't done before. So um, that's a little bit more looks like a daunting task to me than than two weeks on a fire. Um, you said you're going to be using some skills that you may not have used before. You have been a part of a team called Team Can't Stop Racing for uh, how long now? Um, this is my fourth year working with Jesse now. So have you been picking stuff up as you go working with him? Yeah, definitely. It was it was a huge learning curve when I first started working for him, and um, he's guided me along and taught me a lot about um, you know there's there's one thing of just you know you're standing on the sled and and running down the trail, but there's a lot that goes into it as far as you know the dog's nutrition, how to care for you know their feed and and their coats and um, <clears throat> making sure the well the dogs are well taken care of. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, and yeah, I've, I've picked up a lot of. A lot of great knowledge from him over the years and as well as other mushers too that you know I've gotten to know and um there's a pretty tight-knit community of mushers up in Alaska and um everyone kind of helps each other out which is which is cool so other than like length what is I mean obviously this is a much longer well would you say I guess that this is a much longer race than what you've done in the past what kind of different preparation goes into it with it being a little bit longer? Um, so I think as far as, as far as my training with the dogs, like as far as like how many miles they go and how often I'm not, I'm not thinking that will change a ton this year. Um, because in the past working with Jesse, I've, you know, also been training, uh, with his Iditarod team as well. Um, so I kind of see him get ready for Iditarod now for three years. And, um, the, teams that I was the younger dogs or the dogs that I trained here at his kennel and um, a few of them last year um, they went on they did uh, some 300 mile races with me but then they also went on to um, run the Iditarod with Jesse and with other musher friends of ours um, and they all did really awesome so I think as far as like their preparation and like their training miles um, it'll be roughly about the same as as I have been doing I might you know, be doing some, some longer trips, um, like series camping trips, um, where, you know, I'll, I'll run for say 50 miles and then I'll camp the dogs for, you know, five, six hours or something, and then go on another 50 mile run. Um, 
you know, repeat that over run, rest, run, rest for, you know, 200 to 300 miles. I might do, you know, more camping trips like that instead of just like, you know, I'll go on like a 50 mile run one day and then the next day I'll go on a training run and, you know, always coming back home. I think maybe this year I'll spend more time, um, like just staying on the trail with them all the time and and not coming back home for a couple of (laughs) Yeah. To kind of get used to like what the real experience will be like in that sense. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point, though. Like, these dogs have hard, these dogs have so much experience as it is. <laughs> You're right. Most experienced part of any team. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that brings up a good point. So people that aren't familiar with the Iditarod, um, like you said, this is a 900-mile, up to, or actually more than 900. This is close to a 1,000-mile race. And they break it up into different checkpoints. So they'll go for, you know, 50 miles, uh, 80 miles, 30 miles between these checkpoints. And then they they camp. They can get food for their dogs. They can eat. They can sleep for a little bit. And then they're on the road until they get to the next checkpoint. And um, so they do get a little bit of rest. But I, I feel like even when you're at those checkpoints, aren't you? That's when you're doing like a bunch of maintenance and making sure your dogs are OK and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. So say like, um, say you're going to go do a four hour rest at a checkpoint. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean like you as the musher are, you know, taking a four hour nap because once you pull in, you want to get the dogs fed and, and get them rest as soon as possible. So it's, you have to be very efficient when you're rolling up into a rest stop where, you know, immediately getting straw down for them to lay down on. So you want them to be able to, you know, dry in like a, or rest in like a nice dry warm spot, not on the snow. So carrying straw for them, getting that down again, booting them like a hot meal is pretty essential. And then after that is when you can work on their feet. If, if they have a foot problem or do they just need massaging, um, taking the boots off and, and working on their feet. And while you're doing that, um, they're already dozing off and they're getting rest. Um, and then, you know, after, after you're done taking care of the dogs, um, you know, you kind of want to go through all the stuff that you sent out to that checkpoint. So you send out drop bags before the race and they fly them out to these checkpoints because once you leave Willow, which is where the, the real start is, they have like a ceremonial start in Anchorage. But once you leave Willow the next day, um, you're off of the road system. So they have to fly out all of your supplies like a couple weeks before the race to all the checkpoints. And so packing the drop bags is a, is a huge ordeal. <laughs> um, making sure, you know, you got the right type of dog food and, and lots of it. And then, you know, gear for the dogs, booties, coats, um, and then, you know, anything that you're going to need as well, like human food. Um, so, you know, after you get the dogs bedded down and, and resting, that's when you kind of go through and, and pack your sled with, you know, the food that you're going to take on the next run with the dogs and, you know, any, any type of gear. So then you're kind of rifling through and organizing your sled. And then you kind of lay down for a little bit, <laughs> you know, say on like a four hour rest, um, try to get a little bit of sleep and then you get up. Th- this is depending on, you know, how experienced you are as a musher, but usually I'm, I'm going to get up like a 45 minutes to an hour before I'm supposed to leave so that I can get the dogs ready to go, get their booties on and, and get them ready to go. But if maybe I was a more experienced musher, I would take less time. But <laughs> that comes with experience. Is anyone allowed to help you at the checkpoints or is it all does it have to all be from you? Nope. Um, it's all you. Um, and that's part of the 
when you're qualifying for the Iditarod as well, um, there's a series of races that you have to do to qualify for Iditarod, and those you are, you know, you can't accept help from others during those because it's supposed to prepare you for, you know, being able to do it all yourself on a thousand mile race. So it's it's a little different sometimes seeing people around these 300 mile races that aren't calling for calling for Iditarod where, um, you know, they're Iditarod veterans, they don't need to qualify anymore and they can accept help. But it's nice to just be able to, I'd rather do you know, care myself. That puts me, you know, I'm the one in charge of them. I want to know what's going on anyways. So um, it's about best to just be self-sufficient in, in my opinion. Well, and it's good that that's what the training process is, too, because I imagine if you did have help and then you're thrown into this big race, you'd be like so used to having assistance or having somebody else doing something for you that you'd be in way too much of a change shock to be able to do it, probably. Yeah, once we like really get into the swing of training, um, it'll... And right now we're all kind of helping each other out as far as when we come getting ready for dog runs and coming back from dog runs and helping each other get booties on and off and and whatnot. Um, But once we really get into this, it's kind of like, we're all like, don't help me. I need to get ready. You know, like I need to get good at this too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So they use the same checkpoints every year, I believe, correct? Uh um, so there's a northern route and the southern route, and it switches every other year. Last year was kind of funny because um, they didn't go all the way to Nome uh, because of coronavirus, and they didn't want to travel through those villages um, and you know risk spreading coronavirus to um, these villages out in interior Alaska. So they ended up going out to the checkpoint called Iditarod. It's like a old mine, but it's now a ghost town. Um, which is about halfway on the normal route. And then they turned around and came back and finished in Willow. But that was a, um, that was the first time I ever did that. Um, so do you study like each, uh, each route or each checkpoint, like knowing what's going to be the hardest for you and your team or what's going to be the easiest or quickest, or how do you plan your, how do you plan your checkpoints and, and, um, supplies like that? Um, yeah, so I, I haven't seen the trail myself so it's kind of hard for me to even imagine it but jesse's been down that trail and we're gonna you know form my race plan off of you know his experiences um talking to other mushers as well too and and what to expect and what certain checkpoints have to offer and what what they don't like some don't have you know hot water or or something like that um and then you know the parts of the trail that are more technical than others um knowing what to expect and, you know, things change throughout the race as far as, you know, the conditions is, you know, weather can change everything on the race. So there's going to be a lot that, or there might be some, you know, portions of the trail that I won't, it might be completely different from what I heard until I get there. And I'm like, Oh, this is, there's no trail. (laughs) It's really deep snow or it's really, really cold and, or there's open water and on, you know, a section of a river or something like that. It's, it's very subject to change all the time, but, um, I've gotten a lot of, and continue to get a lot of knowledge from Jesse because he's seen the, he's seen both, uh, the Northern and Southern route. So yeah. Yeah. He's actually taken, uh, top 10 in two of the last four races. I saw that. Like, that's impressive. 
Yeah, for sure. He did seventh place his rookie year, which is extremely impressive. I think there's one other musher that, you know, was in the top 10 is his first round, uh, his first round on Iditarod, Yor Olsen, who he won the Iditarod a few years ago. Um, but to, you know, to be pr- competitive like that, especially your first year is extremely impressive. Um, I will not be, you know, gunning for a top 10 finish. I am just hoping to finish. <laughs> um, I'm going to be taking a younger team. Dogs haven't seen, you know, longer races like this. So I'm going to be playing it very conservatively. Um, I just want to finish and set uh, our, our goal is setting these dogs up for the future. Um, so they'll be on Jesse's like competitive teams and in, in years to come. And we just want them to see the trail and, and to know what it's like and and to finish the race feeling, you know, happy and not like pushing them too hard. And so the goal is just to finish with these guys. Um, they're very um, athletic and talented, and I think they're going to do really well, but there's no pressure to, you know, be a certain place or, or anything. And I think that's smart because like you said, you know, what's the point in pushing them if, you know, at the end of the day, you're new to it, the dogs are new to it. so. It would just be pointless, pretty much, and do more damage than good, probably. Yeah, totally. You want them to have like a a good memory of you know, like I got to know them and I finished, and then and then I got to go home and it was awesome, (laughs) you know. But if you if you try to take too many risks and um and then they feel like they're being pushed too far, and then they end up stopping and and then you have to quit the race um that kind of doesn't really set them up for the future very well kind of demoralizing are there requirements for the dogs like do they need to be a certain type of breed do they need to be a certain age um so i don't know breeding actually i would i would assume there's there's not really uh i'd have to look at the rules now but I don't think that they require them to be any sort or like certain type of husky because people have different people have run it with Siberian huskies and people have run it with, you know, more uh, mixes. Alaskan huskies is usually what everyone runs a race with. And that's kind of like a mixture of um, Siberians um, with um, some like German wire hair pointer mix into it from these European mushers came over in the eighties and they were racing these hounds basically in sprint races. And that kind of got mixed in with the Huskies in Alaska. And now there's, they're kind of a, they're kind of a mud actually. They they have some German shepherd in them and all sorts of stuff really, but it's, it's Siberians are, they can, they can run a thousand miles, just not very fast. They kind of have, you know, one speed, um, <laughs> But Alaskan Huskies have, you know, some of these um, faster traits in them um, and they can go just as far, but faster, basically. I'm looking at the 2021 I did a rod that was raced back in this March. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, shout out to Jesse again. He finished 15th, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, But there were... It looks like 46, if I count correct, 46 mushers. And then it, I'm, I count 10 mushers that didn't finish the race. So it's, mm-hmm. if you can finish this race, like you are in a very small group of people in the world that would be able to do that. Right. 
one of my so I used to do some tours down in Juneau. Um, we set up a a dog camp up on these glaciers. Um, it's called Mendenhall Glacier and, and Herbert Glacier. And uh, people fly up in helicopters. They get off the cruise ships in in Juneau, and um, we have a dog camp set up there. And they get a little tour around the glacier with the dogs. Um, and one of my favorite facts I heard up there from another um, tour guide was that there's more people that summit Mount Everest every year than there are people that have finished the Iditarod ever, which is kind of mind-boggling. That's insane. <laughs> oh, wow. So I love how tourists that. <laughs> That's crazy. It's just funny looking at this list of um, mushers from this year. Like, there's at least, I know Martin Boozer was in the race that we did back, I'm going to age myself, but it was back in <laughs> 2000, I think, we were, I was in Mrs. Malmberg's sixth, we, she did it in sixth grade for us. Yep, he's been in the game a very long time. And then this, this Dallas CV, he's won like three times, right? Um, Last year was actually his, oh wait, fourth win, fifth win. Like how does that? How is someone that good at dog mushing? Like how does that? Is it his team? Is it him? Um, so he actually, I just saw him training out here on our trail, um, just the other day. Um, well, he has a very exceptional group of dogs. Um, and he's also a very smart person. Um, he grew up around dogs, so his dad, Mitch CB, um, who's also won the Iditarod a handful of times. You know, he got to learn from a champ himself, and then. He started his own kennel. I'm not sure when, um, but he's been very successful. I bet just like, you know, you just build every time. I'm sure every time you're learning something new and even these people that have probably been doing it for years and years, they're probably still learning new things every time they go out there. Yeah. And that's the, that's the beauty of it. Um, you, I learn new stuff every day. Um, and then, you know, I pick up stuff from other mushers. It's it's kind of funny. It's a it's a tight knit community, but you only really see other mushers like a few times a year at races and stuff because everyone's off in the woods doing their own things. But then when everyone comes together, you know, there might be a problem like a, a common problem that someone has. But there's like 50 solutions that people have come up with on their own, out, you know, at their own remote places in the middle of the woods. <laughs> like, well, this is how I solved it. And this is what I did and blah, blah, blah. So um, it's kind of cool to see you know, so many different ways to do things and there's definitely better ways and not so smart ways, but I think combining um, expertise from lots of different people is, and being open to other people's ideas is, is what makes you better at it. So when you are packing for your sled, your sleds aren't very big and I, um, I didn't realize that you guys set up like uh stuff to be brought to your checkpoints to be waiting for you while you're there so mm -hmm. that kind of that makes sense i was wondering like how you fit everything on these tiny sleds i was literally about to say the same thing brian and i was like i'm so glad they said that about the drops because otherwise i was like how do you have everything in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be pretty nearly impossible um to carry that much i think the, the bulk of the weight in the drop bags is dog food obviously. Um, and that would be pretty hard to carry a thousand miles of worth of dog food. What do you actually have on your sled when you leave Willow? 
Um, so they have a list of required things that you need to have in your sled and they check them at every checkpoint to make sure that you're carrying them because, you know, you need to be prepared for, you know, say if you get caught out on the trail in a really bad storm and, you know, you have to spend the night out there or something, you have to be prepared for, you know, any type of inclement weather and uh, anything that can go wrong, you know, uh, encounter with a moose or, or anything like that. So. Um, they make you carry uh, a lot of dog food um, and then a dog food cooker. So being able to cook them up, you know, a hot meal, um, you have to have a cold weather sleeping bag, um, you know, so at least like 40 below or greater rated. Um, you have to have an ax, you know, if there's like a tree blocking the trail or something like a down tree. Um, but I mean, an ax can be used for a million different other things um what else am I forgetting uh you have to have at least a couple sets of dog booties um in case you know their booties get wet or fall off to be able to change them and protect their feet um I'm probably forgetting some items but that's the the basics of what goes in your sled but it's oh uh human food you need food for yourself obviously as well and then um what does that look like what are you bringing for yourself <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna bring so in the past, for like these 300 mile races I've done, uh, I was kind of just experimenting with a few different things. Um, so I think when you're sleep deprived, especially, you're going to want to eat like comfort food items and nothing that's like too spicy or like too crazy and just something that's really, really easy. So last year, um, do you know what P.F. Chang's is? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Um, so I bought like PF Changs and like cooked them and the vacuum sealed them and then froze them outside. So then, cause you know, all of your, uh, dog food and everything stays frozen and everything, you drop eggs frozen cause they're just outside. So, um, the way I like to do it is being able to, um, thaw out my own food in the dog food cooker. So the dog food cooker, I guess I'll kind of explain that because, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's basically um, a giant pot with like some holes on the bottom with aeration. And there's a little element that sits in the bottom of it that you pour heat, like H-E-E-T that you use like in your car, you know, like the little red and yellow bottles. Uh, I do. Kelsey did not. <laughs> I was not. just going to say. Um, <laughs> I'm like, sure. Yeah, yeah it's, totally. it's used as like, it's, it's like a fuel additive, right, Ryan? Yeah, and uh, it's if you if your gas is freezing, like if you don't have a lot of gas, because you know how they always say don't uh, leave your car on empty in the winter because your gas can freeze. Well, you'd put heat in your tank to help not have that happen. Yes. <laughs> um. Okay. So, anyways, mushers use like the yellow bottles of heat, and I know you use like the red bottles for like if you have like frozen gas lines or water in your fuel or whatever. But anyway, so you pour the yellow heat bottles into the element like maybe two or three of the bottles and then just light it because it's just ethanol and so you just you know light a little piece of like straw or paper or something with a lighter and just drop it in there and um the fuel will like shoot out of the little holes of the element and then you drop uh another pot on top of that and then that's how you heat up water to thaw all your dog food um so all i put is water in there i don't put any dog food in that pot i mix it separately in another container but um, I'll also use the hot water. So 
Last year, I was like freezing PF Changs and then in vacuum sealer bags and then thawed it out in the dog water. But I don't know if I'll do that again. It kind of got a little mushy. Sorry, PF Chang, if you're listening to this, but it didn't do well. Clearly not sponsored by PF Changs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, PF Changs. Um, um, yeah, I'll throw in like random snacks like granola bars, like beef jerky. I really like um, like smoked salmon. That's always like really good quick snacks that like pack a lot of nutrition and energy. Um, things that are just like really easy to eat. Like I made like mac and cheese and like vacuum sealed that and put it in. Like I really like that. I'll probably do a bunch of that. But um, Annie here I had this idea. Um, so Annie is another handler out here, out at um, our place here. We have two other handlers besides myself and Jesse here and we all train dogs and do all the things that we have to do out here but um she had a good idea when if we're just like cooking a meal at home and it's really good we're like oh this is really good like I made some like chicken alfredo the other night and I had some extra like we should just vacuum seal up the leftovers and then send it on the on the trail so instead of like you know the couple days before drop bags are due trying to like put together a bunch of food for a thousand miles and you're like I don't know what to do you can kind of pack it throughout <laughs> the season so I think I'm gonna try that method out <laughs> I'm just laughing at P.F. Chang's though I bet you'd be the only musher racing this year that has P.F. Chang's in their in their bag I don't know I'm always very curious about what other mushers are eating themselves um there is some stops you know where you can you know, they'll have food for you, but it's definitely not guaranteed um, anywhere. So I don't rely on any of that. But on some of the smaller races I did last year, um, there'd be checkpoints where they would have, you know, soup or like there was one stop where it was a it was like a lodge and they had like a bar and grill type of thing there. So you could you could go inside in some places and like order a burger, but like just best not to rely on like others. And, you know, you want to make sure that you have food i'm kind of like a food anxious person i always want to know you know ahead of time i have something so i don't know i'll have to figure it out so you said bar do any mushers ever indulge in some alcohol on the in the race um i would say probably not publicly but i'm sure they do Uh, a little flask i don't know how you could do Uh, that I I, i could see some situations i mean the only situation I could think of where like that would be a good idea would be when you're trying to like get sleep and you can't sleep. It's like the middle of the day or something and you want to go to sleep, but I wouldn't like drink out on the trail. I don't think that'd be like the greatest idea, but I'm sure people do it. You do get, um, (laughs) you do get drug tested, um, while you're on the trail. So obviously you have to be clean of, you know, drugs and alcohol. Amphetamines. Yeah. (laughs) That's just dangerous, you know, if you're not. Yeah, I mean. Well, it's just not fair. Well, it's not fair, but also I feel like there's a lot of risk to that depending on what, you know, you could be taking. Yeah, for sure. Um, What about before and after the race? Because I always explain the Iditarod as like the Super Bowl of dog racing. I'd imagine the party before or afterwards in Anchorage and Nome are pretty pretty fun yeah so i've never been to Nome yet obviously you have to fly there um and i kind of always tell myself i'm like i only want to see Nome on a dog sled (laughs) i'm not you know 
could have maybe gone up for some of Jesse's finishes in the past, but also I'm busy taking care of the rest of the dogs at home while, while he's out on the trail. Um, but, uh, yeah, I went down to Anchorage with him one year for the ceremonial start and for the actual restart in Willow and probably the biggest party I've ever seen in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, there's just thousands of people lining the streets. It's televised. Um, there's a lot of events going on around Iditarod. It's kind of it's kind of the main event of the year in the springtime for Alaska. Um, and I think the ceremony, I think it's about like a seven-mile trail. And one year I got to uh, ride the ride the tag sled behind Jesse's team. So because they like they put snow onto the streets for the ceremonial start. And um, but it's still like you can't necessarily really stop and. Um, so the Iditarod mushers will take an, uh, a passenger basically in like a whip sled behind the main sled as like, Hey, if you need to stop, like I can get off and like, you can hold the brake down. It's like a safety mechanism basically, but it's also kind of fun. Cause then you get to like ride through the streets of Anchorage and <laughs> people are cheering for Jesse, but it, it's, it feels like people are cheering for you. <laughs> well, this year it'll be for you. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's fun. Um, yeah, there's a huge party in Anchorage for the start. And then um, once people are out on the trail, it kind of quiets down around town again. But um, you have a tracker on your sled. And I did a rod does like a insider. If you have like an insider subscription, you can like watch videos. And they have people out at the checkpoints interviewing people and taking videos of all the teams. And they do a lot of like prom- promo type of stuff during the race. Um, and then a gnome, again, like I haven't, haven't been up there and seen it but i'm sure it's a pretty big welcoming um i guess depending on what time you finish at if you finish at you know like three o'clock in the morning there might be no one out on the street (laughs) kind of anti-climatic but that's not really the point who really cares anyways but um right but you know usually you know the top people finishing there's probably i would assume a large crowd of people but um gnome's a smaller it's one of the bigger villages out there um it's kind of the hub in that area of alaska as far as you know the amount of people that live there but it's still a i guess i don't know how many people live in Nome, alaska but not that many i just pictured like you rolling at 3 a.m it's dark no one's out there (laughs) just crickets hey guys i finished yeah that's kind of what i'd expect there's about just under four thousand people live in Nome. Really? Yeah, so it's pretty small. It's like maybe two Besmers. Right. That's how I describe things too. That's about two Besmers or maybe like an Ironwood. Maybe a Hurley. Yeah, on a um, Friday night. So even back when I was in Miss Mumbers class and we covered the Iditarod, like that was like I said, twenty years ago. They made it pretty easy to track your mushers um as it went on. You know, that was the whole point of her her project. So mm-hmm. I'd imagine that even if someone doesn't have an insider subscription, they'll be able to follow you and, you know, see where you're at, see when you get to checkpoints and all that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think I'd have to look in to see what exactly you get with the subscription to the insider, but I believe, um, with the insider, you can actually use the tracking function. So, if you don't have it, you can definitely see like when I arrived in checkpoints, like it'll be posted on like a grid, like a Excel type of thing. 
of like what time I got to checkpoints and what time I left and whatnot. But with the insider, I believe you can like, there'll be like a map of the trail and they'll just be like a little dot. And that's of all the mushers and you click on them and you can see, oh, like Jesse Holmes is going 9.2 miles an hour. He's 15 miles away from this checkpoint and, and so on. Um, and they, um, the tracker will ping every so often, like, it depends on what part of the trail, I think, and I'm not sure how that technology all works, but it's like every five minutes or so, it'll ping and give you um, how fast they're going and where exactly they are. I know we will be following that, and anyone that's listening, like, I will post a link to at least the free tracker, and if you guys want to subscribe, I think the subscription, you can get like a cheap monthly one even and um, just have it for the race, but um, how cool is that going to be to be able to like follow Julie and you know, see, you know, hopefully her finish. Yeah. There, I think there's de- definitely a uh, different levels of, um, like the subscription that you can get. Like, I think you get more with certain ones. Um, I'd have to look into like what exactly you get, but I think even just the basic subscription gets you like the tracker and you can log in and see all like the videos that they post and the interviews and stuff like that. So I have to ask because I'm sitting in the basement right now, freezing cold. How do you stay warm? <laughs> Are there tricks or like, wait, because I mean, obviously the wind and the snow is like blaring at you as you're racing, I imagine. Yeah, uh, actually, can you guys hear me right now? I just walked outside. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Um. So yeah, your gear and like what you wear on the trail is definitely super important. Um, it's actually super windy out here right now. The last two days, um, just, um, geographically where we live, the wind can really, really move out here. Um, but it's, it's warm wind. It's called Chinook winds. Um, I don't know enough about meteorology to tell you exactly what that is, but they're very strong, warm winds. Um, but yeah, so I've been kind of like trying out gear over the years and, you know, when I first started, it was a lot of like, here's some hand-me-down type of things because, you know, that type of stuff is expensive and I've been investing a lot more into it the farther I get into it. Um, but I think I've got a pretty good system now. Um, I think layering is a huge aspect of that. So, you know, you get wear your base layers and then, you know, usually wear like a hoodie or something, which maybe is super smart, like wearing cotton. Um, and then like, you know, a thinner puffy jacket that you, you know, like a North face puffy jacket. I have like, um, uh, I use what's called rab. It's kind of like a European, uh, like ski gear type of thing, but they make really nice stuff. And I've used a lot of rab gear over the years. Um, and then I have like a thicker puffier jacket I wear over that. And then, and then I have like a parka outer layer that is also super insulated and, it has a, a rough on it so that's it's a wolf and wolverine fur that goes around like your hood and it can protect your face around when it's super cold or super windy um it, you can still you know see out of it but it kind of protects the sides of your faces um and that would be like if i'm wearing all of that that's you know usually like my warmest layer um but i can you know take parts of those layers I'll take my park off or take one of my puffy jackets off to if it's you know a little bit warmer out but that's basically and then like bibs and I wear puffy pants under snow snow bibs as well do does the does it coincide with winter here 
Um, I would say it's 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 not quite as humid as it is in like that area of the Midwest. Um, so like 20 below in UP feels so much more frigid than 20 below here because it's a little bit more of a drier climate. Um, but we do see quite a quite a bit of temperatures below zero. Not quite yet this time of year, um, but we have definitely seen some below below zero before um, it's been a pretty warm season so far but um i would say like december january end of december january it's also the darkest parts of the year i don't know if you can hear the dogs howling right I now i was but... just gonna say are those the dogs <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> yep um i'm standing outside next to them right now um but yeah uh, so darkness is also a major um aspect you know, the darkest part of the year. I don't know how many hours of sunlight we get, but um, that usually ends up being the coldest part of the year. Um, so yeah, I'd say December, January. Um, sometimes we can see temperatures of 40 below. Um, I've seen 60 below. Um, it can kind of linger around there. When 40 below does hit, it usually sticks around for a while, and it's it's really kind of hard to do anything at those temperatures. Um, don't necessarily want to to be running dogs in those temperatures. Um, nothing really works like snow machines or, as we call them in the UP, snowmobiles. Um, your trucks, your cars, nothing really ever wants to work. So it's kind of really hard to get anything done when it's super cold. But we find ways. Wait, sorry, you call snowmobiles snow machines up there? Yeah, so I guess that's an Alaska thing. Um, I always grew up calling them snowmobiles, uh, but I guess in Alaska, they're not always mobile. <laughs> so <laughs> they're called snow machines up here. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, and that's kind of our main method of travel when um, we live 30 miles down what's called the Denali Highway. Um, it's just a gravel road, though, and then um, after... November 1st, they don't plow it anymore until the springtime. So um, it's 25 miles of no machine ride or a dog team ride into our place. So we're pretty reliant on our machines and our dogs, you know, to get out to town to get any type of supplies or food or anything like that. Wait, so, do you take, do you dog sled into town? Uh, sometimes. I've definitely done it um, a few times last year when our, <laughs> our snow machines weren't working. Um, whether it be cold or, you know, not having fuel or something. Um, but we've definitely um, driven dogs into quote-unquote town. I mean, our town is called Cantwell. I'm not even sure. I'm pretty sure it's a census-designated area. It's a very small town. I think of a few hundred people. There's a gas station there. Uh, and that's about it. Um, we love Cantwell, and we love all the people in Cantwell, but there's not a lot of amenities. So leaving Cantwell, you either drive um, three hours north to Fairbanks, which has, you know, all anything that you can think of. It's not a huge city, but, um, and then Anchorage is the other way, four way or four hours that way. So if you do go into Cantwell to town, um, there's a grocery store about an hour away in Healy, Alaska. Um, and that's kind of also in the middle of nowhere as well. So Things are kind of a little bit more expensive there, but we end up getting our groceries there just out of convenience. Um, and then town is, you know, another couple hours. So if we do town, 
it's easy just to go to the post office or the gas station anyways. And then um, if we do have to go to Fairbanks or Healy, then we got to put the dogs in the truck and then, you know, go that way. So it's a little bit of a logistical thing sometimes. um yeah it's just a different world up there like the up kind of prepares you for that like we had to drive i think it was two hours to the closest taco bell in in duluth when (laughs) right you you want to talk about you're driving two hours that's a lot like dp in some ways what do you think would be the biggest challenge oh by the way I think everything about dog racing will be a challenge to me. You just said that there's so many ways to use an axe. Uh, yeah. I could think of one. <laughs> <laughs> so you must be very handsy. Uh, there's a few things to use an axe for. I mean, sometimes chopping up frozen um, meat for the dog food or chopping ice off of your dog sled. Or, um, yeah. I don't know. There's a couple, I guess. <laughs> but for like the lay person, like like Kelsey or I, or even someone that would be a little better at what you do than we would be, what do you think the biggest challenge for them would be if they were to hop on a dog sled and try to do a 300 mile race? Um, I think it would be if you had no knowledge whatsoever. I think it would be very challenging in many ways. Um, one thing, I guess that I struggle with sometimes, um, kind of a mental battle as well as, you know, a physical battle. Um, a lot of times you're running on low sleep when you even get to the starting line of a race, just all the preparations that you have to do to get to the starting line is exhausting. And then you're full of nerves as well. So you're kind of freaking out already, um, and running on low sleep. And then once you actually hit the trail and then like resting at the checkpoints and not getting, you know, eight hours of sleep yourself, um, then the sleep deprivation hits and that can be, that can be kind of brutal, um, sometimes, uh, but keeping it together mentally, um, I kind of had some really down moments last year when I was racing and it was just all in my head. Like, yes, I had some things go wrong on the trail and, um, you know, the dogs weren't doing so good on a run and I came into a checkpoint and I was just completely defeated um and I thought I had to quit the race when in reality like it was just so much more exaggerated in my head um I definitely didn't need to quit the race but Mm -hmm. um Jesse was there and he was handling for me on that race and he was there to like pump my spirits up and be like no look like they're doing great look at them eating and drinking like everyone's healthy like you're crazy like you just need to go to sleep (laughs) but like I was just having like a complete mental breakdown (laughs) um but then once I did sleep and and get back up I was like oh it's it's not so bad actually like I think I'm doing okay Uh, (laughs) that's awesome so I think the mental the mental battles and then you know you're just by yourself and you know all the all the thoughts that you know things that you thought you worked through um just you you know things about yourself and things about your family or just anything that's going on in your life like all those things kind of surface at like four o'clock in the morning on a dog sled (laughs) yeah if that That makes makes sense sense. I mean you know you're by yourself with your thoughts like of course you're gonna you know have that time to think about outside stressors too yeah for sure and then um but that was something that after after that race I was like 
okay, I need to like be able to like pick myself up by the bootstraps. I'm not going to have like Jesse to like bring up my spirits every time I'm not feeling so hot, you know? So I think on the next race, that was like my biggest, like, this is something that I can improve on is like staying, staying sensitive by myself. And I didn't have Jesse go on that next 300 mile race. I did the Willow 300. And I remember, um, hitting kind of a down point and being like, don't spiral, don't spiral. Like you can do this. Like you just need to like, you keep moving forward and like, keep going on. Like you, you can do this. <laughs> it's just kind of like, you, you have to be able to like keep yourself up too, I think is an important thing. And that goes with anything in life really is being able to like pick yourself up when you're down is very good skill set to hash. <laughs> Well, and someone might laugh at like the comfort food thing that you said earlier, but like you need those little things because like you said, you're sleep deprived. You need like these little positive things as silly as they might seem to like keep you going. So PF Chang's. Chang's mac and cheese. That would keep me yeah. going. <laughs> yeah, I feel like mac and cheese was a really okay, good one to have. <laughs> you're like talking to the dogs like they're a therapist. <laughs> We won't judge you. No, totally. <laughs> I want to uh, bring this up too. So, like these dogs, like they are, they are really bred for this, right? Like they, they enjoy the race. They enjoy the pulling. Like it's not, you know, it might be hard on them too because it's cold or whatever. But like that's what they live for. Oh, definitely. Um, Annie's just walking outside right now and putting her harnesses on her sled, getting ready for a run, and the dogs all just jumped out of their houses and are running around and barking at her because they want to go um you should see the energy um in the dog yard when we're hooking up for a run they're just like screaming on the ends of of their leashes and just they're they're ready to go and once they get hooked up they're just like going absolutely insane um and then you pull the hook and they're off running and they're not going to stop unless you force them to stop um that's one of the coolest things about mushing is um I've never, I never wanted to, but I've never had to like force a dog to want to run. It's so bad in their genetics to want to pull and how much joy it brings them. It's so infectious. And I'll be posting videos and pictures of, of the teams and whatnot, but um, seeing them barking their heads off and going absolutely crazy, getting ready to go on a run is <laughs> Uh, one of the coolest things. <laughs> what would happen if you fell off the sled? Yeah, I would say there's probably like a 98% chance they're just going to keep going without you. Um, I've heard of some people falling off their sled and like their dogs turning around for them, but that's pretty rare. Um, they're trying to go and they want to go. Um, that's the worst thing that can happen is falling off your sled and losing your team. Um, you know, they can get lost and and get tangled up really easily and if you can imagine you know like say like a gang line is like the gang line is like the main line that comes out on the sled that they're attached to say if that's like wrapped around their ankle it kind of feels like the dog behind them is biting them you know so then you know fights can break out um so you never want to lose your dog team um so what would you do if that happened you don't have a cell phone out there with you i don't think right so what how would you get help to find your team um 
well, you just never fall off your sled. Uh, <laughs> these trails are pretty easy to to manage. Um, the Denali Highway is what we mush on a lot of the time. There's some trails that come off of it that we mush on, but for the most part, it's not it's not very technical. Um, if you fall off on the Denali Highway, you probably fell asleep. But um, so we don't. There's no cell service out here. We carry um, in each Garmin GPSs that they have communication. Um, I forget what it's called. It's called Iridium. It's like a satellite phone, basically. Um, but you can send text messages off of it. And then you can also, there's like an SOS button. And we carry those and we can text each other off of those. Um, uh, there's a few people that live out this way. Um, our closest neighbors are, let's see, they're like about 25 miles down the highway. And then um, there's a lodge another 10 miles after that. Um, and so we have all their in-reach Garmin information as well. And we have our Wi-Fi out here too. So we um, at just at our cabin. So we'll we'll text each other. There are also mushers out here too. So um, we'll text each other like, hey, we have this trail groomed in. And it's also kind of like a safety net for us as well too. Like, hey, I haven't heard from so-and-so. He was supposed to be back by this time and then we'll go out on snow machines and look for them or you know whatever is happening but we all kind of look out for each other out here which is really important because anything can can happen do you guys pick the order that they're lined up like do you have an alpha dog that's in front uh pretty close we call them the lead dogs so the dogs that are in the front of the team are called our leaders um and we're lucky enough to to have quite a few leaders i mean that's something that you train but it's also something that is you know in my opinion a characteristic of a dog some some dogs are just just like people some people and some people are not and that's okay like you, it takes all sorts of dogs and all sorts of people to you know make anything happen but um we've trained a lot of you know the dogs up here in jesse's main team and and the dogs that will go and i did out with me there's quite a few dogs that will run in the front of the team um i am training the puppies right now so um, Annie and Jesse are working with these main older dogs and then myself and Jeremiah, who's the other handler out here, we're working with 24 dogs that are just over a year old right now that, um, they've, they were hooked up a few times, some of them a little bit more than others, um, like in a harness and on a team a handful of times before I got back this fall. But for the most part, um, they haven't really had any training miles on them. So I'm just working, me and Jeremiah are working with those dogs every day and um, just um, doing really low mileage with them and just getting them used to like the repetition of, you know, being hooked up on a gang line and not getting all tangled up and and not screwing around too much. I mean, you let them play with each other and whatnot, but not getting too tangled up and, you know, moving forward in a straight line. <laughs> um, so, and we've been trying out different dogs because, you know, they don't have they haven't had that much training yet. And, but a lot of them kind of have like all these characteristics that I see as good leaders. So I think I've tried out about eight, eight to 10 of them already in the lead position and they all do great um, so far. So there's a lot of potential in these really young dogs, which is cool to see uh, putting them up with like a more experienced leader. So you want your lead dog to, um, always keep the line out, always be moving forward and never like turning around and running back into the team, getting them all tangled up. 
So like just being a forward driven thinking dog is an important part of being a leader. And then also, you know, once, once they get used to running up there, then they start learning the commands, which is ha and G, ha for left and G for right. Um, and that comes with time and that's, you know, how they know to take a turn off of a trail or go down a different trail. Um, but yeah, that's, does that answer? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I just have a guest appearance of Kira in my lap right now because she wanted to eat bugs, bugs off of the floor that I didn't know were there. So, um, yeah, prime leader here. Um, you know, whenever you're ready yeah. to recruit her to your team. <laughs> I don't think she would fit in very well. <laughs> to say the least. I don't know. She Aww. all she does is play. She likes to play the chase game and she could run she could run for ever, but I don't know if she'd be very good at I see potential slide. in you, Kira, and that's all that You'd probably matters. be surprised. Let's tie her to a sled. I think you should try it out. Or maybe like a ski joring. Do you guys get much snow in Milwaukee? Probably not too much. Uh, a little bit. We get like maybe 75 inches a year. Okay. So there's probably like cross-country ski trails around there. I would. It would be a really fun thing to do in the winter. Um, get some cross-country skis and a little ski joring setup, just like a harness and like a bungee rope type of situation. and. Oh my god! I don't know. She'd probably be awesome at it. Kelsey's never skied before in her life. I would love to see this. <laughs> I think it would be fun. She definitely has the energy level for that, for sure. Okay, so I wanna. Um, uh, I was checking out your site the other day. I think that you guys have done a nice little job with that. You said Annie uh, has worked on it a lot. Yeah, she's done she's done all of it really. Um, I mean, we've helped out with like sending her pictures and, and Jesse's helped write some of the biographies for the dogs on the website. But Annie was the, was the major web designer out here, which having no web designing skills, um, or experience, I mean, she did an amazing job. She just kind of, she was figuring out how to code and embedding codes and like all this like crazy stuff that like like how did you she's like I just right? <laughs> figured it out and it's you know considering that she already has like a super busy day of you know doing what we do out here and then on top of that she she made this this summer um this fall summer so um yeah it's really cool so that is team can't stop com, or you can google team can't stop racing and uh it's the first site so definitely, guys, ch check that website out, and there's so much cool information. There's a biography for all the mushers. Um, Julie has been on there. There's uh, information about the dogs, about the team. Um, but what I want to point out is that um, they do have some sponsorship options. They have you can sponsor a dog, so anywhere from the puppies that you know Julie's working with up to the dogs that are going to be racing with Jesse's team. Um, they have just different levels of sponsorships based on what you uh, are able to contribute um, but they even have you can buy some booties for them because they go through a lot of booties so there's different booty packages that um, Annie set up there where you can donate uh, as little as $30 and um, buy the team a bunch of booties for for their practice for their run and whatnot but since I know that a lot of people want to contribute but you know they might not be able to contribute $200 $300 
we are going to be taking donations for Julie and her team. And I'm going to collect them all. I think I'll probably do this over the next month or so. And then on behalf of the podcast, uh, I will collectively, you know, donate to a certain level to uh, their team. So if you are interested in um, helping out, helping Julie's team out, you just heard all the stuff that they have to do just on a daily basis, but especially for the race, the supplies, the food. Um, if you want to pitch in for that, definitely reach out to me on Facebook or reach out to Kelsey on Facebook or message our podcast page and we'll let you know how you can do that. And I'm just, I'm really just talking five, $10, anything like that. We put it together and, and we can get them. Um, and that'll also give you like a way to feel like you're part of the team in March when we are rooting for Jesse and Julie to, is Annie racing too? Um, yes. Annie is running the Copper Basin 300 this year. Okay. You and Jesse are in the Iditarod. Is there anyone else on your team in the Iditarod? Um, nope. We just have these two Iditarod teams, uh, which is the first time Jesse um, will have two teams in the Iditarod. So. And then also he's running this race called the Yukon Quest 550, which um, in previous years it has been a thousand mile race, um, but it crosses the border of Canada and Alaska. And I think because of COVID reasons um, and, you know, border issues with COVID, um, they're not doing the thousand mile race this year, but they're doing a 550 mile race um, as well as a 300 mile race. And Jesse is doing the 550. So he'll be doing that one as well. And possibly um, um, Jesse and Annie might be headed up to um, Kotzebue this spring as well. But um, that's kind of... Um, Depends on how I think I did or on it's going to go, but there's also a 440 mile race up there in the springtime. So that's also on the docket, but very busy season. Yeah. They're both doing the copper basin and then, um, Jesse's the, doing the quest. And then I did her on is the plan for now. Like Brian was saying, if you can just donate a few dollars, you know, when you group that all together, you know, we could sponsor a puppy, we could sponsor booties. So, there's like big things that can come from that. So, and like I said, how cool is it to be able to follow the race and be like, yeah, you know, uh, I have a connection to that team. And, you know, um, you said that your goal is to finish the race. Well, I feel like Jesse's probably shooting to, to win it. Maybe, maybe we can sponsor the winner this year, guys. <laughs> that would be amazing. And just to, just to clarify too, um, we do have, you know, between our all of our jobs out here um jesse mainly um we we have the dog's needs needs met out here as far as like their food and and being able to like take basic care of them um all the racing stuff is just extra really and it just gets expensive racing is expensive um and that is our passion and that is something extra so anything that that comes out of like these sponsorships is it's extra. We don't expect anything. Um, and we've been very humbled by the amount of people that do want to help us and, and see us go out there and race this year, but definitely appreciate anything, um, that anyone wants to donate to our, our, uh, our passion out here. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us and I'm sure we'll be in touch and good luck with the race season. Thank you so much. 